There were very few labor-saving devices, and you know that's what these young women were. They were, they were the the the, the middle-class equivalent of, of middle-class people in the present day buying a dishwasher, getting a Roomba. Uh, you know, not that I have a Roomba, but um, <laughs> like, you know, get, getting a getting a washing machine, getting a dryer. Like there was no there was no option to do that. So the middle classes, in order to middle class women, especially in order to sustain what was considered an acceptable middle class life, they needed these women, right? They needed the the labor, the cheap, long labor of of these other young women in order to sustain their own lifestyles. Hello, I'm Natalie from Genealogy Stories and welcome to Twice Removed, the show where we talk about everything history related. I'm joined today by Dr Julia Late. Julia is a reader in modern history at Birkbeck University of London. She researches and teaches on the history of women, crime, sexuality and migration in the 19th and 20th century British world. Wow. Hi, Julia. <laughs> nice to see you. Hello, Natalie. Nice to see you too. So we're here today to talk about, well, quite a range of topics, but I thought we would start, if that's OK, on um, the, the roles of women in the 19th century. Um, so pretty big topic, but could you tell us a little bit about some of the um, traditional roles for women in the 19th century? Sure thing. So I'm really interested in the period, sort of the late 19th century. And one of the reasons I'm interested in the late 19th century is because it's a time when roles for women start changing really rapidly. Um, and before that period, um, the traditional roles for women would have been largely as homemakers or working in sectors that were very low paid um, domestic service would have been the main employer of working class women. And actually, one of the things that, that kind of bugs me about um, popular culture's depiction of the Victorian period is that the kind of stereotypical Victorian woman is depicted as a middle class woman. And we actually don't get that many images of working class women. And on, unless um, they're sort of selling sex in, in um, endless remakes of, of Jack the Ripper. Uh, uh, stories. And so I'm really interested in working class women. And in the late 19th, sort of mid to late 19th century, working class women would be found doing a number of different roles. They were, they were almost always working outside of the home. It would be relatively rare for um, uh, somebody who from the working class to be able to live up to that dream of the, the breadwinner's wage, where the man was supposed to be the one making enough money to support the family so that the woman wouldn't have to work. This was a reality for some upper working class households, but it was really just an aspiration at best for most working class households. And women would very, very often have to go out to work. When they did, the overwhelming thing that they would be doing was domestic service. Some would be charwomen or kind of doing, doing domestic service um, on a day-to-day -day basis. So going into people's homes, but then returning to their own. But a huge number of working class women, especially young working class women, were engaged in what's called live-in domestic service. So they would be living in a, work, a, a middle class household, usually in the attic at the top or a room built off the back. Um, and they would be um, a maid of all work. Um, if, they were, if they were working for a richer family, there may be several different servants, a cook, a butler, et cetera. But, a, a really typical experience would be a one working class young woman or girl working in a household, 
um, on their own as a maid of all work, which was an incredibly difficult job. So um, work was a huge feature in um, most Victorian women's lives. And uh, in the late 19th century, that slowly starts to change a little. It sounds really, it sounds really lonely, that, that depiction of, um, you know, in a room somewhere on your own, if you were in a small household with no other servants as well. Um, I, I wonder how, what their relationship was like with, um, with the wife of the house, you know, especially um, families that were only employing one servant. So, so we're kind of maybe working their way towards middle class, but weren't necessarily fully there yet. Um, how, how can we go about finding out some of those, some of the answers to those questions really about what women's relationships were like? Oh, this is, su it's such a good question. And it's something I think about so much because the, the woman at the center of, of my new book, Lydia Harvey, was one of these live-in domestic servants. Um, and I'm trying to reconstruct her story based on, you know, very scant evidence on general information, nothing that she wrote, you know, there's nothing with her saying, you know, how lonely she is or how she feels about her mistress or anything like that. And there are a few very, very rare cases where we get, we get women writing, um, you know, creating ego documents as they're called about their experiences in live-in domestic service. Um, but more often we have to rely on oral histories taken in, um, you know, from the 70s on about women who were working um, in a slightly later period, or we have to, you know, glean it from court records, um, from moments when, uh, you know, potentially a servant made a complaint against the master or mistress that they were working for, um, th those sorts of things. Um, but even those are like moments of duress. So, you know, kind of exceptional moments. And it's really hard to get at the, the feeling of that quotidian day-to-day -day experience of being a live-in domestic servant in the late 19th century. And you, you, you asked about loneliness and that, that is where I kind of landed in the end after reading and imagining and thinking about what Lydia Harvey um, might've experienced and felt loneliness was the, the thing that I concluded, you know, she's waking up at six o'clock in the morning to light the fires, to, to get the breakfast ready. She's working all day, backbreaking labor. She's not really speaking to anybody except for the mistress of the house and potentially the children she's caring for. Um, and, you know, children are great company and all, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, being, being there. Yeah. yeah. From all these weeks of homeschooling, you know, they don't necessarily satisfy all of our needs as adult humans. And, um, and, you know, and then at the end of the day, after she got the supper, she'd, you know, get a little bit of, of supper for herself and she'd eat it alone in, in, in the back, you know, and I say in the book to the sound of the clock ticking, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and it must've just been so lonely because a lot of these young women had also left their rural or provincial homes and come to larger cities. So they had that added, um, you know, the added anonymity and loneliness of the city. And, and for a lot of them, it was exciting as well. But live-in domestic service really prevented them from enjoying most of those kind of urban excitements because they were mostly stuck in the house. I mean, they were, they were doing so many hours of work a week. So Lydia Harvey was working in New Zealand as a domestic servant. And in the same year that I kind of discovered her, so like the main year that my book is built around, 1910, domestic servants in New Zealand tried to form a union 
And their chief ask, like their demand, was for a 68-hour work week. Whoa, that's, that's what crazy. They were so like if they were asking for a 68-hour work week, how many hours were these women doing without, you know, with, you know, with those demands on Met? And in the end, the union was disbanded and they were never given, um, they were never given that demand. Um, incredible, like incredibly hard, incredibly lonely work. I mean, you, you, you know how long it takes now to, uh, you know, care for children, look after a household home, um, do your kind of admin, your laundry, your hoovering, all those kind of things, cook. And that's with all the modern technology that we have. So. I, I'm not surprised that the hours were incredibly long because um, yeah, because yeah, everything would have just taken such a long time, wouldn't it? Even like yeah, simple exactly. things like lighting an oven, lighting a stove was time consuming. There um, were, yeah, exactly. There were very few labor saving devices. And, you know, that's what these young women were. They were they were the the the, the middle class equivalent of, of middle class people in the present day buying a dishwasher, getting a Roomba. Uh, you know, not that I have a Roomba, but, um, <laughs> like, you know, get, getting, a, getting a washing machine, getting a dryer, like there was no, there was no option to do that. So the middle classes in order to, middle-class women, especially in order to sustain what was considered an acceptable middle-class life, they needed these women, right? They needed the, the labor, the cheap, long labor of, of these other young women in order to sustain their own lifestyles. Um, and it's a really difficult, fraught relationship, which goes back to the question that I didn't answer, which is the relationship between between these girls and young women and their mistresses. And you know, the, obviously, they ran the gamut. They could they could go from uh, something approaching friendship to something that is li was literally abuse. Um, but uh, but very often it it was it was something in between, which was you know a relationship governed by very strict rules about, you know, knowing your place. Knowing your place was a, was a really big theme in this period. Um, and, and no matter how pleasant the relationship, it was still caught in that dynamic that the middle-class woman needed to extract the, the, the cheap labor of the working-class woman in, in order to have a middle-class lifestyle. So, you know, that was always the defining kind of feature of that relationship. I find that really interesting what you said about um, uh, knowing your place, because I always think, certainly with the earlier Victorian period, and I, I don't know if it's the same with the later 19th century, that there's a real contradiction there, that you're meant to know your place, and yet you're also meant to, you know, invest in self-help and rise up the ranks. And how do you, you know, how did they try and balance those two, you know, very different ideas that you're, you're meant to, you know, be humble and um, obey all the kind of moral codes and know your place. But at the same time, you're meant to be striving and ambitious and want to lift your family up, especially, I mean, probably more so for men. But was that still the same in the late 19th century, that kind of expectation to rise yourself out of poverty? Yeah, I think that that, if anything, is becoming an even kind of stronger contradiction by, by the late 19th century in that um, so you've got you've got this sort of economic system that's based on the cheap, flexible labor of young women. Like this is a global system. This does, this isn't just like a handful of middle class households. This is what sustains the entire global economy. Um, is this kind of extractive, exploitative labor, specifically of young women? 
um, which requires them to leave their homes and go and live in these kind of vulnerable, precarious positions. But at the same time, they were supposed to be respectable. And they were supposed to, you know, so you get all of this kind of moral literature saying, you know, the best place for a young woman is her home and parents should be surveilling these young women and stopping them from getting in trouble because they need to be respectable in order to make a respectable marriage, in order to achieve this dream of, uh, of never middle class, but kind of upper middle class, upper working class, respectable life where you have a home, a stable home and a father who works, a mother who cares for the children, that kind of vision of uh, the perfect working class life. Um, so you get all this sort of advice on how to achieve that, but totally ignoring the fact that huge numbers of young women have to leave this supposedly sanctified space of their home and go off and work in somebody else's home, often being subjected to sexual harassment, abuse, um, you know, in cities where there's all of these other kind of temptations. And so they started getting obsessed with the unhealthy ambitions of these young women. So these young women were supposed to, like mo a model woman was supposed to work in another, uh, in a middle-class home for a few years, somehow find a partner or a husband, you know, even though she's working more than 68 hours a week. So on the four hours she gets off on Sundays, she's supposed to respectably find a, a, a husband. Uh, that husband, you know, is supposed, proposes marriage, they marry, they have children, they, they move up the social ladder enough to be respectable, but not enough to actually challenge the middle class. So this that's the sort of model. And as you can imagine, that kind of rigid vision of how a woman was supposed to be respectable was A, really difficult to live up to, but B, like not actually that exciting. <laughs> and so, um, the women in this in this period in this late 19th century period it's the um one one newspaper called it the age of advertisement so you know as she's sitting flipping through a magazines eating her dinner alone she's seeing all these these ads to for these these this better lives you know so travel steamship um tickets um on sale kind of creams, clothes, all of these beautiful Pret-a-Porter fashions that are starting to flood the market that are almost within her financial grasp. And so women like Lydia Harvey start to, they start to dream bigger. They start to have more ambitions and that really disrupts um, the kind of hegemonic culture's idea of what their place is supposed to be. And so you get this huge panic about all of these women who don't know their place. Okay, okay. so obviously at the end of the 19th century and as we enter the 20th century, you have some pretty big world events, you know, World War I, um, and you have, um, in that period, you've obviously got the suffragettes as well. So as women started to um, get better opportunities and get better rights, what how did this sort of change in the 20th century and what kind of anxieties did that cause and problems? Yeah, so one of the big things it causes is what the late Victorians and Edwardians, and this sort of happened a little bit earlier too, but it really got bad in the late 19th and early 20th century, the servant crisis. And you know, when we- when we reminds me of Downton. Yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly. I remember that on Downton, we can't get any new servants, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and like that, oh, I've gone blurry. Oh, there I am. There you go. <laughs> Um, you know, and that, that was, you know, it's, it's almost funny when you read it, like when you encounter the, the, all of these people freaking out about the, the servant crisis, 
Um, but when you put it in the context of, you know, as I explained about how this was the only way to maintain a, a respectable middle class household, it starts to kind of, you start to realize this, this was an enormous um, crisis for the middle class. For the working class women who were increasingly saying no to domestic service, it wasn't, it wasn't a crisis. It was, it was an opportunity. And so they, they, they start work moving into, especially into shop work. So start working at department stores, um, you know, li little shops, and some of them start to get better educated. They're able to move into clerking roles, um, secretary roles. That's, it's early for this. A lot of them move around the world. So they take, they take up jobs um, on the other side of an ocean and um, they're sponsored to go by their employer. And it's often still domestic service, but it's, you know, moving to the other side of the world as a domestic servant is, is seen by a lot of women as a, a gateway into being able to be more socially mobile. Um, and, uh, and this is all kind of leading up to the period of, of 1914 when, in the First World War. So the, the world is really in flux and more people are moving than ever have moved before, more working class people especially, because steamship tickets are affordable, because um, South and North America especially are starting to open up huge amounts of land, develop railways, develop farming, demanding labor. So women are moving. Was it, was it that opening up of land that made the women think that they would have a, a, a better life out there or a more socially mobile life? Um, you, you, yeah, you mentioned I mean, that they were kind of they they were doing domestic service. They thought they'd be better doing domestic service abroad, and I just I just wondered why why they yeah, thought that. Really good question. I think there was definitely a myth that um, these these places had like land and and amazing amounts of social mobility, like these, this idea that you could get rich as an Argentine uh, if you if you went to Argentina in its golden age. Um, but the reality was slightly different in that, so the land was opened up by, usually by violent and unjust seizures of land from indigenous peoples. And it was redeveloped so that um, instead of small holdings and farming, it would be these large scale industrial farms. Um, most of which were designed to supply Europe's growing hunger for fresh meat. So at the same time we get, um, at this period also sees the dawn of refrigerated steamers. Um, and that seems like such a niche thing, um, the refrigerated steamer, but it was really central to so much of this global movement because they were able to ship fresh produce from all around the world to the affluent markets of Europe and, and North America. Anyway, so this, these changes start mean that the cities start growing, middle classes start growing, the demand for servants in these spaces start growing. Factory work is another um, work obviously that women are doing. Um, and it wasn't so much that they saw an opportunity for social mobility in the land, but they saw it in terms of the, the even domestic service tended to be better paid in these spaces. Um, and there was like, you could go as a domestic servant, but then after a few months, you could get into a factory. Um, and, and move your way up there. And a lot of women were doing this, like really strategically and savvily um, moving from position to position until they got to a point where they were making more money. Um, so yeah, this, this, is, this is the kind of backdrop where this world where women are supposed to know your play, know their place is suddenly a world where, you know, 18 year old young women are getting on steamships in 
England and sailing to Argentina, um, definitely not knowing their place. And so it creates this huge amount of anxiety and that gets expressed in the discovery of trafficking, of sex trafficking or white slavery as it was called in that period. Um, this idea that these women were incredibly vulnerable and they were very, very likely to fall prey to these dastardly foreign traffickers who would defraud them, sort of tell them, oh, we've got this amazing job for you um, at this factory in Buenos Aires or um, even better at, at a theater in Buenos Aires where you're gonna be um, in front of the footlights and on stage and spin all these wonderful tales about social mobility, exciting work, work that isn't 68 hours a week by yourself scrubbing floors. Um, and that the, the, the idea behind trafficking was that women would fall for these defraudments, uh, agree to go with these men. And then once they arrived there, were imprisoned in brothels, were forced to sell sex. Um, and so there was a global panic. It's really difficult to, to overstate how pervasive this panic was over these young women who were being kidnapped and defrauded into the sex industry at this time. Was it a justified panic or were the numbers of people actually being sex trafficked, um, you know, low compared to the number of people that were finding um, opportunities? Yeah, I think I think that was it. It was it was it was not a particularly justified panic for several reasons. And it's really difficult to to kind of get to this way of thinking because what you don't want, what I don't want to say is that this exploitation wasn't happening. Because of course it was happening. Of course there were vulnerable and naive young women who, you know, because because they didn't have um a good social network because they didn't have good financial resources um, or anyone to advocate for them were falling prey to, to people who wanted to exploit them, including people in the sex industry um, who wanted to exploit them. So, you know, what, everything I say after this needs to be prefaced by, by that, um, that reality. Um, and in the case of Lydia Harvey, that is absolutely her reality. So the story I tell in, in, in my forthcoming book is 100% about that kind of experience. But the reason why I call it unjustified is, is for two reasons. One, because the numbers were actually very low. Um, there were not you know, thousands of women being kidnapped in broad daylight off the streets of New York and London and shipped off to the brothels of Panama and Buenos Aires. Like it, it just wasn't happening that way. I mean, presumably there were problems with exploitation on home soil as well. And it's, it's interesting that it only becomes a big concern when people are leaving. <laughs> exactly that. Because like, that's the other reason it's unjustified is because it's like a red herring. So everyone had this sort of idea about what sexual exploitation looked like about what the exploitation of young women looked like. And it was all these very sensationalized stories of white slavery, of women literally being kidnapped, you know, getting syringes in the arm that knocked them out or chloroform or being kidnapped by, by women dressed as nuns, like really sensational kind of urban legend stuff. And so everyone was looking in that direction and nobody was looking at the fact that domestic servants were working 75, 80 hour work weeks. Um, 
for very, very little pay, or that women were working in the global entertainment industry on these very dodgy, very exploitative contracts that often ended up with them bottoming out in the in in the theater and having to to turn to selling sex because they had to eat. Yeah. So like that's it. It's it's it's, yeah. it's there's exploitation, but these stories of white slavery masked the exploitation that was really happening. Yeah. Certainly as a genealogist, I find that really interesting because um I you know they say I think five percent of your tree is illegitimate and I reckon all five percent of the world are in my tree. Um I have lots and lots of working class ancestors and lots and lots of illegitimate ancestors. Um and some of them are working in domestic service when they have their children um, and some of them probably you know were fathered by the people that were meant to be looking employing them and looking after them so I think um, a lot of people who've done their family history will, will certainly be sitting there nodding going yeah oh yeah I can see that exploitation it's it's there in evidence on my family tree you know um, exactly and that that's it the reality for a lot of a lot of these young women you know the message was the home or the middle class employer's home is the safe and correct place for you. And the reality for so many women was the opposite. The home or their, their, the home in which they worked was the, the opposite of a safe space. It was, it was the most dangerous space they could be and leaving that space was the only way that they could protect themselves. And for a lot of women, you know, if, if a woman is pregnant and has a baby out of wedlock, um, she has to go into domestic service and she is not allowed to take that kid with her. Mm -hmm. And so these children were fostered out on a regular basis, um, often to into very unideal conditions. You know, I'm not suggesting that everyone was baby farmed, but there was no regulation. Adoption wasn't regulated. Fostering wasn't regulated. If you were lucky, you got a good social, like a voluntary social worker who found your baby a, a good home and eventually you were able to reunite with them. But in other cases, you know, you, you never saw your baby again or your baby died. And I just, I like my heart breaks thinking about all of these stories. Cause like you said, this isn't, this isn't something that happened every now and then this is systemic, um, you know? No, I found a case um, in my, well, I say my family tree there in my hither, Hither's one name study. Um, and it's a, a, a 1920s case of a woman that has um, taken somebody else's baby, registered it as their own. Um, it's kind of unclear. I, I think she was probably trying to adopt the baby, but she neglected it. She, she got found out. Um, there was a whole yeah, her, her husband, hilariously, her husband didn't know that the baby wasn't his and that she hadn't been pregnant for nine months. <laughs> there's, there's, there's lots going on there. But yeah, but this but this was, you know, it, I mean, it was, a, it was a big case. It was in a lot of the papers, national papers, which is how I discovered it. But still, that was 1920s. I mean, that's quite late. You kind of think that there'd be more, um, more eyeballs on, on people giving birth and babies being registered and, and all those kind of things. So yeah, no, it's definitely really interesting. Um, yeah, you, you would think, but I, I don't, I don't, I'm not an expert in the history of adoption, but it doesn't get, it doesn't get regulated until shockingly late. And mm -hmm. actually there's still aspects, um, you know, right up into the late 20th century, early 21st century that seriously need looking at. Mm. Um, just rewinding a little bit about, um, I, I watched a talk that you did on um, uh, the term white slavery and found it really fascinating. So I just wanted to go back and pick up on that. Um, why were people calling this white slavery as opposed to just slavery? Why did they feel the need to uh, define it by a color? 
So the term white slavery actually, um, you know, it has several different origin stories, but before it was connected to what we would today call sex trafficking, it was actually used to describe the labor of white American working class men. Um, in that this was, you know, not that long after the end of, of, of black slavery in the United States. And, and this, the discourse amongst um, labor unions was, we've gotten rid of black slavery, but we have white slavery as in wage slavery. So right off the bat, it's already really problematic because of course there were black men and black women who while freed were also engaging in incredibly exploitative labor. Um, and so it was, it was already this highly charged racialized term that implicitly suggested that the exploitation of white people was a more serious concern than the exploitation of people of color. And so around the late 19th century, this starts getting really firmly and irrevocably connected to women. Um, so it kind of loses its meaning as, as wage slavery of, of white male workers and starts to be specifically connected to women and specifically connected to prostitution. I think it's really difficult and I don't think anyone's ever going to kind of come up with a, a completely clear compelling argument on exactly why that happened and exactly how because it, it kind of gets seeded around um, and spread and some people are using white slavery to mean all prostitution like it's almost like a euphemism because they don't want to use the word prostitution other people are using it really specifically to mean cross-border sex trafficking other people are using it to just mean exploitation and prostitution, but not all prostitution. So you, you can't quite tell. But either way, it's still playing on this idea that it's worse to exploit or, or like more morally reprehensible to exploit a white woman um, and to sexually exploit a white woman than it is to exploit a woman of color. Like they are completely invisibilized by this discourse of white slavery, even though, you know, numbers wise, they were absolutely suffering exploitation and sexual exploitation in much higher proportion um, because they didn't have, you know, they were already in exploitative colonial spaces. And so this, this idea of white slavery is connected to the growing tide of, of racism, um, scientific racism, especially and eugenics in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, because white women were seen as, and you know, I'm, I'm virtually quoting here, the guardians of the race, the defenders of the race, because it was them who were going to reproduce the next superior white generation. And if they didn't know their place, if they stepped out of line, then their kind of role as the kind of symbolic mother of the white nation was also, um, you know, put in put in jeopardy, and so there was just so much packed into this idealized version of what a young white woman was supposed to be, and and that's why white slavery became this flashpoint of anxiety because it was about race and racial degeneracy, and it was about unchecked migration, like you said, like there's lots of exploitation happening at home. How come you're only seeing it when people start moving? So it was about unchecked emigration. It was about unchecked immigration. Um, it was about exploitation and other work 
um, you know, that, that kind of simmering anxiety, like, oh, you know, maybe we need to pay domestic servants more, but we can't pay them more because um, then we'd have to set, make sacrifices. You know, these sorts of anxieties all coalesce around these narratives of white slavery, these women kidnapped off streets and put into brothels. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah I, I'm just mulling over what you said and it's, um, it, yeah, it's very much, um, well, this isn't that other slavery that that's over there that, that doesn't really affect us that actually we've benefited from. It's this terrible slavery, you know, and it's, yeah, there's something so uncomfortable about that as well. Exactly. Um, there's you. actually, you know, you, the, in some of these, these, this literature and like this huge upsurge in literature on white slavery, like um, sensational books, um, uh, they all come out around 1909 to 1912. And one of the very first narrative suspense films um, a Traffic in Souls. So one of the very first films ever made and the top grossing film of its decade was about white slavery. It was about a Swedish a woman who was, uh, who was defrauded into the sex industry and imprisoned in a brothel in New York. And in these, they literally say things like this, you know, compared um, uh, this woman's horrible situation um, is, is worse than the African slaves. Like they literally say that it's not implied. It's 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 explicitly stated that this form of slavery is worse, um, and obviously there are there are there are problems with that um, right off the get go. But it's particularly striking that you know. Meanwhile, you you go and you speak to women who are working in the sex industry, and they go, "No, we're we're not enslaved. You know, we we chose to sell sex because it's our only alternative." to working poverty. But this allows us to keep food on our plates. It allows us to be socially mobile. Um, it allows us a little bit of, of fun, um, you know, some luxuries. We can buy that nice dress. We can go to the cinema. Um, and it means that we don't have to work 75 hours a week in the home of some random woman. And so like on the one hand, it's this horrific effacement of the ongoing exploitation of people of color in, in the global economy. And on the other hand, it's it's a it's it's a complete misrepresentation of what the majority of women working in the sex industry were experiencing. Um, so it's just it's a it's a it's a it's a real tangle um, that's incredibly difficult to unpick. So we talked about a little bit about anxieties um, around that sex trafficking. When when is that kind of when sex trafficking was? born into the um, kind of public consciousness? Uh, you know, how how old is sex trafficking? Is it a modern phenomena? It's a really good question. I mean, I think if we take the reality that underlies the anxiety, as in um, women defrauded into, into migrating into vulnerable situations, being exploited for their labor, be it sexual or non-sexual labor, <clears throat> then trafficking has been going on for an incredibly long time. Um, certainly as long as pe people were engaged in mass movement. So, you know, there, there were people who you could justifiably call trafficked in, in the early modern period. Um, in fact, you could say almost all of the people who, who left Europe and, and went to become settler colonials in, in other places were in one way or another trafficked because they were defrauded by migration agents. They were indentured to them once they arrived. You know, it was, it was dodgy labor practices pretty much across the board. 
And it was the 19th century that started to invent this idea of the free migrant. Um, and this is an idea that the historian Adam McEwen um, really develops in his book called Melancholy Order, which is a fantastic book about migration. And he sort of says, first, they came up with the idea that people were free so that there was this thing, this ideal vision of a free migrant. And surprise, surprise, that free migrant was a white man, um, <laughs> that ideal free migrant. And then all these other people were unfree and they were they might be trafficked. Um, and so the the idea of of trafficking as a kind of illegal thing started to develop in the late 19th century. Um, before that, it was just kind of accepted that people were exploited and defrauded when they migrated. Um, so in, in, in some ways, and this is Adam McEwen's argument, is that they needed to invent the idea that somebody could freely migrate before they could invent the idea. Yeah, that, that makes sense that you've got to have that. It, it, it kind of ties in with that um, that kind of history of, of, of the sense of self and the sense of um, your own rights as a person. Um, and you know, we didn't have that for a really long time. <laughs> exactly that. You're, you're, that is a, a completely exactly part of that story. And, um, and so when they start inventing the idea of trafficking, it is all centered around sex trafficking. So today we've made slight inroads, although I'm still very cynical, we've made slight inroads in terms of raising people's awareness that trafficking is in the majority labor trafficking, not sex trafficking. So for it's, it's trafficking for what we would call licit labor. So work in nail bars, work in uh, agriculture, um, and work, definitely work in domestic service, which I think I would say is it has been for two centuries the most commonly form of common form of trafficked labor um, is is domestic service, and it's overwhelmingly women who are doing it. Um, but at this time, sex trafficking was the only form of trafficking, and it started to be invented as a legal offense. Um, I would argue it starts around the 1870s in the United States, and it coalesces around the idea of trafficked Chinese women. And it really quickly becomes, so the, the law is ostensibly designed to protect these poor, vulnerable, feckless women from being trafficked into the United States by these horrible Chinese pimps and traffickers. Um, that's the ostensible aim of this law. But as you may imagine, the actual aim of this law was to prevent Chinese migration to the United States and certainly to prevent Chinese um, people from building families and becoming settlers. Because what they wanted was the same thing they wanted from those young women, right? They wanted to extract cheap, flexible labor from Chinese railroad workers and canal builders um, and, and not have them build families and communities. Um, and if women were coming, then that was what was going to happen. And so the very convenient thing to do was say, oh, look, these, all of these women are trafficked. We must stop them from coming for their own good. And that's what happened. And then in 1885 in Britain, they pass um, the Criminal Law Amendment Act, which is an omnibus act that has a lot on the go. But for the purposes of answering this question, <laughs> um, it, it defines the, the, the offense of procurement for the purposes of prostitution, both within and without the king's dominions. So it defines an international crime. So it says it doesn't matter if this has happened on British soil or not. 
um, it can still be it can still be an offense. And that is arguably the first British law against sex trafficking. But here's the kicker. They're, they, they're like, well, you know, we have to make sure that that, you know, these women are really innocent. And so the law says that it's only an offense if the woman is not, and I quote, a common prostitute or of known immoral character. So it, it, they, the, the law literally says it is not possible to traffic a woman who is not sexually innocent. So if this woman didn't know her place, you know, if she stepped outside of her place and maybe, oh my God, had sex with a man that she wasn't married to, then you know she she can't be she can't be this ideal victim of trafficking. She's not a white slave. She's just a common prostitute. And so these these laws are just like full of holes, right? Yeah, which you know, yeah, it's it's really shocking. And then it, you just imagine being pregnant as well. You you literally no wonder that was um, feared so much because you, you, how could you argue you, you hadn't if you were pregnant and unmarried that's it you're you're literally pregnant and screwed aren't you yeah you know exactly. exactly and your options are so slim you know you there are mother and baby homes that you can spend some time in but they're you know most of them are, are pretty punitive mm. um because you haven't known your place and you need to be punished and you need to be shown your place um these mother and baby homes train women to become domestic servants again so you know a really common trajectory is a young woman is desperate like absolutely desperate to get out of domestic service and i mean you can only imagine how that must have affected so many women's mental health so when i say desperate i mean profoundly desperate to leave that kind of work um getting out of domestic service moving into shop work or factory work um, which enables her a little bit more freedom so she has she gets off in the afternoon she doesn't have to just keep working gives her more opportunities to 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 meet men to have sex and to get pregnant because of course there's no information about preventing pregnancy and there's very very little um, idea that a woman has a right to say no um, and I think especially for a lot of these women, the right to withdraw consent. So, you know, we still talk in the present day about, you know, the, the right to withdraw consent. And that's often a really difficult area when you're trying to prosecute um, sexual offenses. That, you know, yes, I consented initially, but then I withdrew consent. And I think that was happening at, a, at a, an incredibly high level for women in this period where you know, they'd be dating a man, they'd be kissing a man, and he pushed it further. And there was very little idea in the woman's mind or in the man's mind that she was able to withdraw consent after that. Yeah, well, I mean, um, rape within marriage didn't get um, defined or, or made illegal until what, 1960s? Is that? No, 1990s, something like that. 1990s. Yeah. Yeah, and... yeah which is... <laughs> Exactly. And, you know, they are, they are still, I think, technically, women who sell sex can now legally be raped. But there are still so many sex workers right now who, who, who report having their cases dismissed, because they are sex workers. So how, what, what did they expect? And again, it goes back to this idea about contracts and withdrawing consent. And um, you, you can still ask somebody in a courtroom what they were wearing. You know, yeah. 
as it, you know, you can, still, you can ask a rape victim what they were wearing and 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 make it all about moral character. So yeah, it, I mean, it's you still can, you can you can requisition their phone and and show that they were sending they were sending inappropriate texts. And... Oh yeah, because I mean that proves that you were not raped. I mean, it, it, it is absolutely ludicrous, and it is it's... of known immoral character clause, yeah. like whether or not it's still on the statute books, is absolutely still in our culture. Yeah, completely. Um. So that 1885 Act, what kind of wide ranging repercussions did that have? Yeah, that one, that one, ironically, <laughs> didn't have that many. Okay. Turns out, putting those clauses in about how the woman couldn't have, uh, could, couldn't have, you know, had to, had to not be of known immoral character, meant that prosecutions were really low. Um, and so you just get uh, at tops a handful every year from 1885 up until the First World War. So let's like, I could go on, but we'll focus on that period. Um, so really very, very few prosecutions. I think it's about a 50% conviction rate. Meanwhile, <laughs> they have other laws on the statute books. Um, against pimping. So in 1898, they, they, they passed the first law against living on the earnings of a prostitute. Um, and they also still have all of the, the laws on the books to prosecute solicitation. So women selling sex on the street. And that 1885 Act also made brothels illegal. So the key to those other laws I just mentioned is that none of them require evidence of exploitation. They're all very easily prosecutable laws that have very low burdens of proof, which means those are the laws that get enforced. And, is it, yeah, I was yeah. going to say it's interesting as well, because I think when we think of brothels, it's quite easy to presume that it was a man running a brothel. But actually, that wasn't always the case. And you could get, you know, bands of, uh, of women banding together and essentially having a madam that ran the brothel. But yeah it, yeah sorry go on i was thinking no, that's exactly what i was about to say um, sorry <laughs> no you you no no exactly that that you know so when when that's why i emphasize that these laws didn't require evidence of exploitation mm. because so they they make a broth they make brothels illegal as part of this upsurge in concern about white slavery and exploited exploited prostitution but then case law defines a brothel as simply a house or a space premises where more than one woman um, you, which what more than one woman uses um, to sell sex. And so that means not only the, these sort of brothels that you just described in terms of there's a madam and a, and a group of women, not only do they come under this law, but literally just two women living together for their own protection come under this law. And in my first book, I went through all of these prosecutions and I looked at who was being charged the vast majority of charges for brothel keeping were against women. And the vast majority of brothels that were prosecuted were actually the home of two or three women. So this idea of these mega brothels run by despicable um, men and you know sometimes despicable madams, again, I'm not saying they didn't exist, but I am definitely saying that they were not in the majority and they were not in the majority of cases that were prosecuted probably because they were they were better off and they were more able to pay bribes um, okay. <laughs> to tell you the truth, which is the kind of thing that you just don't find in the historical record. <laughs> no, as long as you have to read between the <laughs> because lines. Because it was never written down in the first place, let alone archived and preserved. Um, so yeah, so you get, you get an incredible, a, a huge surge in brothel prosecutions. Women are made homeless. 
women are having to turn more and more to third parties like dodgy landlords and pimps to help them find places to work, to watch out for them because they can't work with another woman. So they need to do something. Um, and so you see this huge upsurge. And, and so it's, it's the great irony, right? This, 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 this enormous concern ostensibly about the well-being of vulnerable white women actually turns into a crusade uh, against these, these, these women who didn't fit the, the, the kind of ideal victim but who are actually the women who are working in the sex industry. Um, so yeah, this it, it, it is kind of a, the perfect example of what you may call, you might call a carceral feminism or carceral morality, where you, you identify a social problem, you instigate a moral panic, and then you bring in new laws and give police more power um, to prosecute. And the people who, who come under that scrutiny and who end up being prosecuted are always the, the vulnerable people, um, not, not the big baddies that, that you created in the, your narrative. So how, so how did those, those laws and acts that were made in the past, how do they influence us today? Why are they important? <laughs> really good question. Um, in one, uh, you know, in one way, all of these stories are important because they're still happening, right? They're, there's the, you know, right now the the dynamic, the kind of global dynamic of who works as domestic servants has changed, but it's um, global majority women who are having to leave the global south usually and come to the north to work um, under really ex in really exploitative conditions with very few rights and very little recourse. They they literally have no recourse it's printed on their work visa, no recourse to public funds. And so that's, you know, that's one reason why it's still important, but it's because the laws are still in place. So that 1885 Criminal Law Amendment Act, it's changed. It, it was re kind of reframed in the 1956 Sexual Offenses Act and in subsequent laws against trafficking and in most recently in the 2015 Modern Slavery Act. Um, but versions of the idea behind it remain the same. And the, the solicitation laws and the brothel laws I just mentioned are 100% word for word still in the statute book. And the case law definition of a brothel as a place where more than one woman works is absolutely still in effect. So um, right now, um, the English Collective of Prostitutes and Decrim Now and other sex workers' rights organizations are one of their biggest campaigns is to campaign to have that changed so that women can work together in safety. Um, so that's 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 important because it's literally still <laughs> still there. And I but I think in a in a broader sense, this idea of the idealized victim of trafficking is still very much in operation both in our culture and in the law, uh, like as, as in jurisprudence, you know, as as the law plays out in the courtrooms, and the vast majority of people who are identified as trafficked don't don't fit this idealized narrative, you know, because they're supposed to be passive victims. They're supposed to be guileless and innocent. They're supposed to not have known. Whereas most of the time people are kind of constantly strategizing and in this constant negotiation, it's like, okay, I know this guy's dodgy, you know, this, smug this smuggler's dodgy or this guy's, you know, is a little bit of a trafficker, but like, what choices do I have um, when I'm fleeing violence 
for example, at home, when I'm fleeing destitution, when I'm trying to escape an abusive relationship or uh, you know, an abusive family, um, you know, people are making decisions and their, their decisions, there's two, two bad choices, but they've made the choice. And, and in making choices, they kind of end up having that status as victim taken away from them because you know, then the courts say, oh, but you chose to go with that person. Oh, you went back to that person. Um, you're not a victim of trafficking. You're just an illegal immigrant. And guess what? We now get to deport you. But of course, that's what they do to real victims of trafficking too. It's just that the real victims of trafficking, the, sorry, I'm using real written like yeah, here. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the real victims of trafficking um, get, get six months to a year uh, of being able to stay in the United Kingdom, for example, um, but then they're still repatriated. So um, there's so much re-trafficking and re-smuggling going on because nobody's doing anything to, 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 to improve the, the situations that force people to make these difficult decisions in the first place. And it's, it's, it's kind of depressing as a historian. I mean, his, being a historian is, is kind of a generally depressing thing to be. But <laughs> in this case, it's, it's extra depressing because it's just, you know, you're just watching the, the, the same, just the same thing happening over and over and the same bad solutions being suggested and the same kinds of narratives being spun um, by anti-trafficking organizations, by films, um, you know, I, I just hiss when I think about that film Taken, um, which is just such a, a horribly inaccurate depiction of, of, of what trafficking looks like. And, you know, it's just, it's just, you just think, can we not move beyond this and come to understand, uh, come to understand this as a much more complicated story? No, I find it when I listened to your talk on um, white slavery, that's one of the things that I found really interesting about it was the um, the newspapers that you shared and the examples of the sensationalism felt so familiar. Um, and that's because we still read them because <laughs> they're still going on. And um, obviously, I know we've touched on um, some really important issues here and I do have some more questions for you. But before we move on, I just wanted to know whether you could um, uh, give people a little bit of advice or um, where would they go if they wanted to read up more on these issues and find out for themselves and make that I know some of I know people have quite strong feelings as well about prostitution um, and so if they want to make up their own mind and do the reading um, to, in order to do that informed where, where where can they go oh that's a really great really great question I will plug my book yeah <laughs> <laughs> because um, the disappearance of Lydia Harvey which um, is coming out soon it's exactly uh, one of the things I wanted to do in that book was not just bash people over the head saying, you know, like, this isn't real, this is a myth, you know, you're, you're so wrongheaded being against trafficking and it's more complicated. Like, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to tell a story that was polyvocal. So every chapter is written from a different point of view. Um, and I wanted to, to give this impression of, you know, there can be exploitation and injustice at the same time. Um, and so that's, you know, I, I think that I've written it in a way that people can really encounter this issue and encounter several different ways of looking at it. So that, that's one, one thing I tell them to do. The other thing I tell them to do in terms of modern issues, but actually they do run some historical things too, is the absolutely amazing website called Beyond Trafficking and Modern Slavery, which is um, produced via Open Democracy by a group of academics and activists 
who are really, really concerned with global labor exploitation and sexual exploitation, but also really concerned about the way that it's being dealt with. And so it's this really clear headed, um, uh, you know, huge number of articles at this point. Um, they're, they're quite short, they're accessible, and they are the, the one stop shop to, to getting better informed on these issues. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, I will make sure I put links to all of those in the notes as well. Um, so going back into quizzing you a bit more, <laughs> talked about women and one of the things that you touched on is um, is how uh, women's stories aren't always recorded about reading between the lines. So I just wanted to ask you, you know, just how difficult is it to uncover women's lives in records generally? You know, I know, I know as a genealogist how difficult I find it sometimes. And I just wondered as, a, as an academic historian, if that's how you define yourself, you probably don't, probably have lots of hats. Um, getting into my historian's collaborate mindset there. <laughs> um, yeah, I just wondered how you found finding women. Yeah, and actually the two hats that I would say I wear, which is, you know, a, a public historian writing writing books for more popular readership and an academic historian. Um, the, the, those two hats actually inform my, my answer to this. And I think one thing I would say is that popular history has, has a long way to go in terms of writing women's lives into the broader narrative. You know, there's still a huge skewing towards the kinds of histories in which women are, are, are either invisibilized or just not represented. Um, and um, there's, you know, I think one place where that's different is biography. I think we're seeing um, more women get biographied. Um, and I, I'm really interested in biography as history. And there's very, actually very few conversations about this. Um, out there because I looked I looked for them and they're strangely separate genres um, which they shouldn't be because I think biographying people can be a way in and there's some brilliant biographies of of relatively obscure women who happened to write so that's one of the, the one of the, the one of the things that tends to really limit us is that women didn't write as much and when they did they would destroy it or just lose it, right? There was less of this idea amongst all of the working classes, but especially working class women, that their words mattered, um, that you know all the letters that they wrote to loved ones could potentially be considered important. And it just, you know, I, I, I get very teary-eyed when I think about how much has been lost. I remember my grandmother telling me about how she had written love letters to her, her new husband um, when he was fishing. Um, so I'm from Newfoundland and he would leave in the summers to go, to go and fish. And um, they wrote love letters for three or four years back and forth. And of course, as the historian, I was like, well, where are they, where are they? And she looked at me and she went, sure, we burned them. And I was like, you, you burned them? She said, they were embarrassing. And I just thought, no. <laughs> Do you think do you think there's something in that in that you know maybe as women I don't know, it's it's a real stereotype so kind of treading carefully but that maybe we reveal a bit more of our emotions and therefore we don't want other people reading them you know I I keep I kept a diary during the pandemic which I've mentioned a few times and I don't know how I'd feel about somebody reading it a hundred years later um, you know yeah. there's some pretty personal things in there so yeah 
I think I think I know I think that's I think you're right that it's like a stereotype but it's also a cultural norm right and that that was governing a lot of women's thinking about themselves and sense of self and they were more likely to write about personal issues um and 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 less likely to want other people to read them because of course when men are writing they're very you know creating quote unquote ego documents they're still creating a public face they're often writing about you know they, they, some of their personal life might come into it but you know they're writing about some kind of form of public life and women who had so many fewer opportunities to have public lives really only had the domestic space and the family space and the emotional space to write in so yeah exactly and then that becomes documents that you're less likely to want to publish or preserve or deposit in an archive um you know, I think the messaging that, you know, your words aren't important, your feelings should be private was incredibly strong, especially, and it was, and it was gendered. Women really felt that strong, more strongly than men. And so, you know, we, we don't have that. We don't have the thoughts and feelings. We don't know what a lot of domestic servants felt like when they were sitting alone in the dark, eating their dinner. Um, so we do have to use imagination. I think that's one of the first answers I would give is that you know, we have we 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 have to be willing to to talk about things we're not certain about when we talk about the history of women. I think that family history techniques are enormously helpful in this. So that's how I reconstructed Lydia Harvey's life. It just like it would not have been possible. I guess it would have been possible if I'd made it my life's work. But even then, I like my life's work with a team of 40 researchers behind me, maybe I could have found these needles in the haystacks that I that I used to reconstruct the lives of the people in my book. But it was really, it's really just been the past 10 years, even five years, and the mass digitization of genealogical records, thanks to the demands of family historians. So without family historians, I would never have been able to write the book. I never would have been able to find the women in it. And so but like, like I can, you know, we get frustrated by these little snippets, right? Because we just get these glimpses. We don't get these juicy bits of, of letters. We, we barely even get photographs. And so I, I think that I would make a really strong case when people are thinking about finding women in history to break out of that kind of convention that more traditional histories insist upon that we're only allowed to talk about things we're sure about and that history, you know, history is about facts and, and, and evidence. And I'm not saying that we don't need facts and evidence, but I think that if we're going to resurrect these women in the past, we, we have, we have to be uncertain. We have to say, maybe she thought this, maybe she thought that, maybe she, she went there, maybe, maybe she gave the baby up for adoption. Um, perhaps this, perhaps that, you know, kept, you know, kept in check by, you know, the wider context. But if we don't do that imagining, we're not going to find them. And we might be wrong or slightly slightly inaccurate, but that's better than them not being there at all, right? Yeah, no, I agree. And I, I, I think reading um, reading around and uh, looking at kind of cultural history can really help with that as well. So looking at the newspapers, at the adverts and at the personal ads and um, reading books by female authors of, uh, at the time, even if they might have been writing under pseudonyms, but, um, you know, Brontes and Gaskells and um, Elliot and all those people, they, you are reading a woman's work then, and at least you can kind of draw um, some parallels, if nothing else. So no, yeah. I completely agree. And those women are, are seeing differently too, right? They're, in fact, it's funny you should mention that because 
my image of Lydia Harvey that I painted at the start of this um, conversation about her working in this um, urban home and or suburban home in, in, in Wellington and making dinner and sitting alone and wearing a dress that was uncomfortable and too hot and smelled under the sleeves. Um, like it, it, it all comes from a Catherine Mansfield short story, not all, like it comes from me piecing together the information I know about where she worked and who she worked for with, um, with more general kind of social history about domestic service and a, a Catherine Mansfield short story that happened just out of sheer coincidence to be set in the same suburb where she was working in the same period in which she was working. And Catherine Mansfield's writing about it from the perspective of her childhood, but she's also writing about the servant who worked in her home. Um, and so, yeah, I kind of triangulated those three things. I, I, I took the, the genealogical evidence of where Lydia Harvey was and who she was working for, the general social history of domestic service, and then this like really quite perfect bit of literature written by a woman um, who was living at the time in that place. And I kind of squished them together to get this image of what it was like to have been Lydia and what it might've felt like. I, I can't wait to read the book. So can you remind everybody what it's called? And, and it's out on the 1st of April, isn't it? Which, which will be um, after this gets shown. So could you tell everyone what it's called sure. and where they can go I'll find it? it Yay! <laughs> uh, it's called The Disappearance of Lydia Harvey, A True Story of Sex, Crime and the Meaning of Justice. And um, yeah, it's uh, it's coming out on April 1st or it has come out on April 1st. <laughs> um, and you can pre-order your copy or at, at this point of airing, you can simply order your copy um, <laughs> from all fine booksellers. Um, and I'm really happy to say that unlike academic books, it's it's an affordable book, um, it's, a, it's a trade book. So um, then that was, that really meant a lot to me to be able to publish in that way. Um, not only because it, it made it accessible and, 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 and that sort of thing, but also because it was incumbent upon me to, to make it readable and to, and to tell a story that, that, wanted, that made people want to keep reading. Um, so I hope I've achieved that. Um, and yeah, so uh, enjoy. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to reading it. And la last question, will you come back and talk to me about it after I've read it? <laughs> Definitely, because there are there's like a few moments in there that I like. I can't wait to talk to somebody who's a who's a genealogist and a family historian about these like aha moments when I finally found something that I've been looking for. So I can't wait to talk more about that. Oh, brilliant. Thank you very much for your time today, Julia. You're very welcome. It was lovely to chat with you, Natalie. Thank you. If you enjoyed this video, don't forget to hit subscribe or visit me at www.genealogystories.co.uk.